Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Sam Bendet with the Center for Naval Analyses with an update on the Ukraine war, and Byron Catlin of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. But first joining us is my dear friend, Barbara Rome, one of Israel's leading security reporters and analysts. Uh, Barbara, thanks so very much for joining us. Hey, Vago. Uh, an absolute uh, pleasure. Before we get started, a word from our sponsor. HII is one of the largest artificial intelligence and machine learning federal contractors to the U.S. government. HII delivering the advantage. Barbara, uh, the ground assault uh, is now underway. It's uh, phase two of Israel's campaign uh, to eradicate uh, Hamas from Gaza. The uh, Netanyahu uh, government has said that doing so is going to put pressure on Hamas uh, to negotiate the release of hostages. Uh, More uh, or about 230 uh, Israelis are captive. Four have been released uh, through uh, negotiations. But the families now fear uh, that uh, the the future of their loved ones uh, is now in jeopardy now that the uh, operation has uh, begun. Uh, inc- Israel is increasingly returning fire uh, from Hezbollah. Uh, you're uh, north of uh, Tel Aviv in uh, Herzliya, and you've been seeing rockets coming over uh, your head. Uh, U.S. forces have struck Iranian proxies uh, that attacked U.S. troops in the region, and the Iranians are, are vowing a wider conflict, and I'll get to that uh, in a second. What do we know about the progress that's being made uh, in Gaza as neither the government nor the IDF is saying very much. And they're not saying um, very much intentionally. They don't want to tip their hand, but the fact remains that more than 300,000 Israeli reservists are poised and ready and uh, awaiting their orders. The fact though, Vago, is that whether the IDF manages to seize territory, or if it manages to rally and somehow remove Hamas as the sovereign military power in the Gaza Strip, and that's a huge if, uh, unless those hostages are freed, October 7th, 2023 will forever be remembered as Israel's searing defeat. Uh, Israeli citizens are suffering, they're in some suffering from manic depression, uh, mania wow. and a good way in that the uh, the, the grassroots are all coming together, regardless of the left or right of the political spectrum and the secular or religious. They're volunteering. They're trying to be active. But the depression, the depression that every single day that passes and those hostages are not freed, every single inch of territory that the IDF seems to be controlling uh, in its uh, subterranean quest to remove or, or, or squeeze the toothpaste, as you say, from the tube, Uh, It it lessens the likelihood that these hostages will come out alive and uh, the just the the sense of betrayal and the anger and the zero faith in this government led by Benjamin Netanyahu is all pervasive. Uh, Let me ask a a follow up on that. Um, You know, um, you and I have talked about this and I've talked to other Israeli friends uh, as well with, you know, even those who have been mobilized uh, to go into service. So as you said, It's this yin and yang, you know, on the one hand, the nation is coming together, orthodox, uh, you know, yeshiva students are signing up for army service, even though a couple of months ago, they were looking for legislation to, uh, you know, keep them from service. Uh, At the same time, um, you know, we had an extraordinary episode over the over the weekend where Netanyahu basically tried to throw the entire leadership under the bus and said, at no time was I warned 
uh, about this. What what are these divisions necessarily mean? Um, you know, given right now there's a task at hand, not just recovery, right. but a very complicated military situation and a mil- well, very complicated military campaign. The objectives as defined by the government are completely contradictory. You cannot remove Hamas as the sovereign uh, and rid its uh, infrastructure, the military uh, infrastructure, without harming the civilians, the the, the hostages there. So the inherent the, the inherent dissonance within the government's proclaimed objectives and the complete lack of faith in Netanyahu, who is covering his own behind in. in in preparation for the day when there will be commissions of inquiry. During wartime, there was a tweet in the middle of the night where he uh, laid blame on the military intelligence and the Shin Bet for lack of uh, warning. And uh, today's uh, headlines in the Israel's largest uh, paper, Yediot Dachronot, actually is quoting from a uh, classified, a very classified document from 2016 when Avigdor Lieberman was defense minister, where they're specifically warning of the scenario that Hamas will want to take the fight into Israeli territory and abscond with hostages. So yes, Benjamin Netanyahu may have only known of this uh, crossing the border at 6.39 a.m. on that dark Saturday of October 7th. But the fact is that he has been prime minister for 14 of the last 16 years, and he has yet to take any type of responsibility to the, to the contrary, he's during wartime plastering all the kind of blame on um, the people that are supposed to be now waging war and, and defending the state of Israel. So it's complete. Um, it's just complete despondency all around. Um, I uh, am uh, going to say the New York Times also had a great story about the uh, head of military intelligence, um, you know, warning and being uh, criticized uh, by the government uh, when uh, the military intelligence chief said, hey, look, you know, there's there's something brewing and we've got to be ready uh, for it. Let me uh, go uh, to the campaign. Um you know, I have indelicately called it called it squeezing uh, the tube of toothpaste because I think the initial plan was, you know, hopefully the Egyptians open the border and you know Gaza gets depopulated into the Sinai, uh, which which Egypt uh, doesn't want to see. Uh, the Israel Defense Forces uh, are warning hospitals in Gaza, claiming there are uh, bunkers uh, and Palestinian leadership hiding out under there. International m- medical authorities have said, look, the hospitals above ground are hospitals. Uh, irrespective. There are many thousands of patients, uh, you know, in these hospitals and refugees uh, around them. How does Israel conduct this operation? Because we had a failed, you know, Islamic Jihad missile hit a hospital and it caused, you know, uh, right. fury Israel worldwide. was automatically blamed. Yes. Israel was automatically blamed. And the international community did rally in many cases uh, to uh, support our leading powers, you know, giving their own intelligence assessments. But but basically that worked once. I don't know how many more times it's going to work. How, right. do, how does Israel carry this off, Barbara, given that demonstrations and anger are rising in a lot of Muslim countries, whether they're on the other side of the p- planet? We had something right. happen in Dagestan. Uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan is marshalling hundreds of thousands of people at demonstrations in Istanbul. H- how does Israel accomplish this delicate feat of basically fighting under hospitals? 
Well, first of all, this uh, public uh, outrage uh, throughout the Arab world and on the far right, uh, far, excuse me, the far left wing, uh, ultra progressive um, college campuses in America and in Europe, Israel doesn't care about them, not at all. Israel is fighting now um, for really, for uh, what Benjamin Netanyahu uh, so uh, you know, dramatically claimed is a fight for its survival. It's the second um, war of independence. I mean, that's hyperbole and it's uh, totally unhinged coming from a leader of Israel. But the fact that whether uh, Erdogan uh, rallies uh, half a million people in um, uh, Ankara doesn't, doesn't matter to Israel, but uh, about the hospital, to revert to your question about the hospital. After the 2014 war, the ground war, we were in a conference, I don't think, you might remember, where the um, head of the, the guy who wrote the ethical code, Professor Asa Kasher, was talking about the validity of bombing Shifa Hospital, knowing that there was a labyrinth of tunnels underneath that housed a Hamas command center. And the prevailing opinion then was that if the uh, outcome of such an attack were, um, were, was more beneficial to the ultimate war aim than the damage incurred from the attack itself, then that would be considered legal under international law. Of course, Israel didn't at that time, it was very tempted and there were serious discussions at the time. Now uh, there's even more serious discussions and they do have legal backing to justify such an event. I hope it will never happen. And uh, also to your question, Vago, about what Israel is doing at every, certainly at every brigade level, and I believe that at every battalion level, and certainly in Southern Command headquarters, every time that they uh, fire um, a, a, a UCAV, an, um, an armed drone, they have attorneys there. They have attorneys there that are, are look, they're scouring the law books and they are saying kosher or not kosher. So Israel is in large part in credit to the United States leaning uh, that Washington is leaning on Israel to uh, meticulously abide by the laws of war. But, you know, in war, uh, mistakes happen. Right. The Americans uh, bombed the Chinese embassy, remember, in Belgrade. I mean, things happen. Right. But Israel is taking um, uh, efforts to uh, pr- prevent violations of any um, laws of war. Robert, I have uh, one more question about sort of the spread of the conflict conflict, even uh, Israel's Abraham Accord partners, and including close security partners, Egypt and Jordan, uh, have uh, condemned uh, Israeli uh, attacks uh, on civilians. We can appreciate that Hamas is using all these people as human shields, but at the end of the day, it's it's a horrible uh, death toll. How long before Arab states break those agreements that they've signed with uh, Israel? And second, how long before Iran gets more actively involved, given that the Iranian leadership has already uh, said, you know, America, if you play with fire in this region, you're going to get burned. And as long as there are more Palestinian Mm -hmm. casualties, we're going to act. Well, as far as the condemnations from Arab leaders and partners to the Abraham Accords, uh, they they have to. It's lip service. They have to uh, condemn Israel uh, secretly. They want Israel to win and they want Israel to remove the threat of Hamas. But they until when? It's until they feel the pressure from their own people. That's the critical uh, question. And um, it remains to be seen. Uh, Saudi Arabia would get by with 
um, platitudes of condemnation, not necessarily sincere, but um, uh, as far as Iran entering in and making this a regional superpower war, I just have to say thank goodness for the Gerald Ford car carrier and the Dwight uh, Eisenhower carrier and the 2000 Marines that are here that are providing the deterrence that Israel completely lacks right now. And, um, and let's just hope that the, the United States continues to hold Israel's feet to the fire, right? And, it, and I see proof of that because already in the past 24 days, eight Israeli soldiers have died, have been killed by mortars and um, anti-tank missiles along the Northern border. In normal times, this would have sparked a full conflagration with uh, Hezbollah in Southern Lebanon. Right. But they're maintaining, they're trying to contain the flames, keep them low flames. And I would just turn your attention, something to look for and something that Washington has been pointing out. Israel needs to keep those settlers in uh, tight reign because they are running roughshod over poor, innocent Palestinians who are trying to harvest their olives at this time of the year. There have been, I believe, seven or eight deaths and forced expulsions of such intimidation and bullying that these poor people are leaving their villages in the West Bank. So this does have a, it's a powder keg and it has, uh, as Hamas intended, they call this the Al-Aqsa flood. What they wanna do is ignite the whole region against Israel. Let's hope that they uh, do not prevail. In, in many respects, very briefly before we go, has Hamas won? Bago, I think that Hamas has already won. You know, October 6, uh, 1973 has, still is commemorated in Egypt as the Great Victory Day. And October 7th, 2023 will always be remembered as the Hamas Great Victory Day, or rather the dismal, debilitating Israeli failure. So whatever happens on the battlefield and un, in, in those tunnels, if those hostages are not freed, this will be forever seared as a debilitating and humiliating defeat for Israel. Barbara, thank you uh, very much for joining us as always. Really appreciate it. Hang in there uh, and uh, stay safe. All right, Bago. Till next time. Cheers. And a quick word from our sponsors. Bell sponsors our daily coverage. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. And as it's Monday, joining us now is Sam Bendett of the Center for Naval Analyses. He's also a fellow at the Center for a New American Security. Uh, he is uh, part of CNA's Crack Russia team and one of the world's leading experts on the Russian military and unmanned uh, system. Sam, uh, thanks very much again for joining us and I hope you had a great weekend. Thanks so much, Vago. Uh, weekend was very busy. Hope yours was good as well. Uh, it was uh, absolutely uh, terrific. Uh, and I hope you got some time uh, to relax because I know that uh, you have a tendency of working uh, all weekend long, right? You're on the continuum of work. Uh, and unfortunately, in your business, uh, there is no shortage of work. Uh, and we're going to talk about uh, both uh, the Ukraine war, but also uh, the spillover from Israel's war uh, on Hamas. First, bring the audience up to speed on what's going on around Avdivka uh, and elsewhere as the Russians try uh, to distract Ukrainian attention and resources uh, from Crimea. Well, there's still fighting ongoing around Avdivka. There's lots of fighting going on in the in the Bakhmut region. Um, the Russian sources are reporting that um, Ukrainian soldiers are attempting uh, landings near 
uh, or rather across the Dnipro River. Uh, there hasn't been a lot of change again, and, and this is kind of uh, the statement that we've repeated um, for weeks. It's because it's difficult to attack uh, lines that have been en entrenched and well defended. And obviously, Ukrainians are wary of massing their forces now in any part of the front because of the prevalence of UAVs as ISR elements that can identify any grouping of forces. Uh, so the fighting is still taking place. The casualties are still taken, but uh, Ukrainians are very slowly inching around Bakhmut. Uh, in other parts of the front, there hasn't been any significant change, but uh, Russian government once again complained that Ukraine launched uh, a drone attack against the Crimea, and uh, apparently uh, Ukrainians launched several drone attacks into Russia as well. This right. actually demonstrates how ubiquitous such attacks have become, how difficult it is to uh, interdict all of them, even if the drones are shut down, even if Ukraine shuts down uh, Russian uh, Shahed slash Gerain drones or Russians sh shoot down right. Ukrainian drones. It's difficult to stop these type of attacks from taking place. And months ago, I stated on this program that uh, Russia's government uh, governor of Crimea said that aerial drones remain the single most important threat to the peninsula and the Russian assets there. And so Ukraine is going to continue to press Russian soldiers at different parts right. of the front, and it's going to continue launching um, UAVs as well. Um, let me uh, take you to uh, the question of munitions. Um, Israel, uh, munitions that were being pulled from U.S. stocks uh, in Israel uh, were going to go to Ukraine or going back to uh, Israel. The chairman of the NATO's military committee, uh, uh, Admiral Rob uh, Bauer, has said that we can now see the bottom of the barrel uh, when it comes to assistance. Now there's talk that, look, we're, we may be running out of uh, AMRAMs to use in the NASAMs uh, and the uh, air system uh, that we may have to be bringing hawks uh, from stocks, uh, right? I mean, a blast from the from the past with some modifications. What's the armament situation and how dire is it, uh, Sam, at a time when Russia has gone to a war economy and is also getting help from North Koreans as well as Iran? Well, I, I think it depends on which part of the front you're really talking about. I think it depends uh, what kind of systems and weapons are used. Um, obviously, this is very uh, heavy artillery intensive uh, fighting. And uh, this war really depends on a lot of artillery. But again, um, it really matters which parts of the front uh, we are talking about and where Ukraine tries to concentrate its resources. The conversations about um, diminishing stocks and supplies have been around since, I think, middle of last year. We, we talked publicly here in the United States and in the West about um, limited uh, supplies, but uh, Ukraine kept on fighting and uh, Western industries were able to actually switch production, increase production, and uh, to reorient some of their production for more needed uh, parts, components, supplies, and munitions. And it is likely that this is going to be the case as well. Again, a lot is still unknown, and a lot will depend on the U.S. election cycle next year, what kind of conversations are taking place at the highest levels of power in Congress amongst the uh, elected officials and, of course, amongst those who are seeking uh, the White House uh, spot as well, what kind of assistance is going to be offered to Ukraine. But again, we were talking about um, diminishing stocks for quite a while, and yet uh, the supplies are there, the ammunition is there, and Ukraine keeps on fighting. Of course, on the Russian side, things are uh, slightly different. 
Russia's getting assistance from its uh, allies. And uh, we talked about how basically a lot of North Korean military equipment is based on Soviet equipment and in some cases based on the Russian one. And so there's a lot of similarities and commonalities in certain types of rudimentary and basic technologies like artillery shells that the North Koreans are manufacturing and that the Russians are manufacturing. So this may have an effect, but it also depends, again, on which part of the front the resources are used. Despite all the industrial strength that Russia has, despite all of its stocks, and uh, obviously despite the help from, from allies, it hasn't really made significant progress against Ukrainians either. And so right now, this more or less static situation will probably be in place uh, as we head into the winter. Um, talk to us about the extraordinary events in Mahachkala, uh, the capital of Dagestan. It's kind of the last uh, place one would anticipate to see an anti-Israel, spontaneous anti-Israel protest. And that's exactly what we saw uh, as a plane from Tel Aviv was, was landing there. Talk to us about what this means and more broadly, what does it mean for Russian power? Well, the region you're describing, the Dagestan region, which uh, sits north of the Caucasus on the uh, Caspian Sea, uh, has been volatile for quite a while. It's directly to the north of Chechnya. Uh, there was a lot of unrest in the region starting with the 1990s. Uh, the Dagestan as a region and the Dagestani people were affected by the wars in Chechnya and, uh, and by the Russian force posture there. And so the region remains volatile uh, simply because it is very distinct from the rest of Russia. Uh, when it comes to its social, cultural, and uh, religious composition. Um, many Muslims in Russia uh, support um, actions of Hamas, and uh, they try to support Gaza. And so the situation remained explosive uh, over the past two weeks. It just hasn't really manifested into anything. And so over the weekend, someone spread the rumor that the aircraft that landed in the Mahachkala airport, which is the capital of Dagestan region, uh, has uh, Jewish people on board, and suddenly a massive crowd has materialized. Thousands of people swarmed the airport. They swarmed the tarmac. They interrupted the operations of the airport. They threatened uh, the security services and the police. In fact, law enforcement was injured in the process. The people were looking for Jews everywhere, including the now famous picture of a guy actually looking inside an aircraft engine. I mean, I don't know what he was trying to find there. Um, but uh, it took a while for the security services to quell the protests. They have arrested people now. They have released numbers of injured. And again, law enforcement remains um, sort of, uh, and I think around uh, 2,000 law enforcement people are actually in, uh, in bad condition because of that. Today, Russian president is having an extraordinary um, meeting with all heads of government departments on what happened in Mahachkala. So we're talking about the entire government, all the security services, interior, services and, and the key governors. So this is a problem simply because situation quickly got out of control and the security services couldn't handle it. And there's two ways of looking at it. One way is occasionally governments worldwide basically give freedom uh, for some of the anger and resentment to be siphoned off in protests or in other actions, right? But usually that happens in more or less a controlled environment. And another way of looking at it is that Russian government, regional and federal, actually lost control of the situation. Because what if these people would have damaged aircraft? What if they would have killed people they thought were Jewish who were not Jewish? There's a video of, um, of, uh, of, the, of the protesters uh, surrounding a man who claims that he's from Uzbekistan. And so that situation was volatile as well. What if they killed people? And again, um, security services were unable to do anything about it. And these were, again, angry young men 
who stormed the airport. And angry young men in the Caucasus remain a very potent and a very dangerous force still. Um, if um, if these people don't have sort of an outlet for their anger or if they don't have employment or if they think they're not part of a, of a sort of the larger um, economic and social cultural stability in life in the country. Um, so there's there's still a lot of issues which the Russian government has tried to address uh, in different ways and in different forms. Um, and uh, occasionally this anger boils up. Uh, and so the question right now is, how will the Russian government define this um, riot? Uh, what kind of responsibility anybody will take? Who will be punished for it? And what if this happens again in other parts of Russia? What if this gets out of control? What if the riots spread and turn into something more sinister instead of just looking for specific types of people? What if the anger is turned against the government uh, or against the war or against what people perceive are social, cultural or economic injustices? So this is what happened in Mahachkala. Again, it was quelled. It was stopped by security services. People were arrested. People were hurt. But the question now remains whether this was actually um, uh, beneficial to the Russian government or whether the Russian government was caught unawares. Uh, absolutely uh, fascinating. And one more point. Uh, the Russian government and the commentators uh, say that these uh, riots in Mahachkala were actually um, provoked from the outside. So by, uh, by the West, by Ukraine, uh, by whoever. And so they're trying to sort of place the blame on outside actors as opposed to look at uh, at this issue uh, closer and try to figure out why would so many uh, young men just uh, vent their anger at the domestic infrastructure and really impact how not just the airport, but how the city of Mahachkala uh, was over the weekend. Uh, it's a, it's a, a very good question. But I mean, if you look at anger, regionally, especially in Muslim communities and not necessarily just Arab Muslim communities, right? I mean, uh, you know, Dagestan is a Turkic uh, country and we saw Recep Tayyip Erdogan, right? You know, addressing hundreds of thousands of people in Istanbul who were protesting as well. So, you know, this, this you know, some of this could be provoked, but some of it also, uh, unfortunately, could be uh, sadly uh, spontaneous. Sam, thanks uh, as always for joining us. Really appreciate it. Always a pleasure having you on the show. Uh, have uh, a great day, great week, and look forward to having you uh, back on next week. Thanks so much. Thanks, Vago. And joining us now is my good friend, Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Uh, Byron, I uh, hope you guys had a great weekend and thanks so much for joining us. I wish I could say I did, Vago. I was under the weather. Uh, I'm very sorry about it, but you sound as good as somebody uh, under the weather uh, can uh, sound. So I hope you're fully back in battery uh, soon. Um, the House uh, has its 56th uh, speaker, Representative Mike Johnson of Louisiana. Uh, he voted against uh, stopgap funding to keep government open, wants a temporary uh, funding extension to allow for deeper uh, spending cuts. I would note that this current budgetary situation we find ourselves in will result by some folks say about an 8% uh, acquisition cut because you're not going to mess with uh, you know salaries and you know operations um, um, funding. Uh, he opposed Ukraine aid, although we heard from Michael Herson uh, on uh, Friday's show that he is going to put it to a vote and it's likely to pass even if it's separated from Israel aid. Uh, the president uh, has reported in his uh, $106 billion funding bundle. What's going to be the impact of this new speakership on industry? I don't think much is going to change, Vago. I mean, uh, I think the idea that you're going to separate 
Israeli aid. And then, oh, by the way, you might try and find offsets <laughs> for that and just leave Ukraine completely on the table. Um, the House might be able to do something like this, but then then what's the Senate going to say? And what's the administration going to say? And I'm, you know, I heard Michael's view that, yeah, uh, he would allow the Ukraine aid uh, a vote on the floor. Maybe. I don't know if that's going to be the complete package that the administration submitted. I would agree with with Michael that if that's the case, it, it would pass. Uh, the, the Democrats in the House are going to vote for it. And I think there are enough um, uh, members of the GOP who would vote for it. But I think... Um, you know, and then you have to look at the other parts of that package. You know, would you get the money for the submarine industrial base? There's a lot of aid for um, for kind of broader humanitarian and financial aid that kind of gets back to, um, you know, stabilizing a world that looks very unstable right now or attempting to, to help stabilize it. And I just wonder, you know, are those the kind of things that are going to fall on the cutting floor? So I don't have a good sense here where this is going to play out other than, um you know, I, I just wonder the dynamics that were in place when McCarthy was speaker and you had a fairly small uh, group within the GOP Freedom Caucus who, you know, any sign of compromise with Democrats uh, was was anathema to what they wanted to see. So that's where I'm still uh, concerned about what happens with these spending bills. Um you know, on the other part, the administration is supposedly going to be dropping another $50 billion for non-defense uh, spending. So this is going to add to this pile of work that Congress is going to try and get through. Um, I, I don't think anything's really going to happen before <clears throat> the current CR ends. Um, maybe I don't know if we're going to get a shutdown. Uh, I really don't care if we do. I mean, I, I get the disruption that it, it plays with people who work in the federal government. I think they're awful. But I still, in my heart of hearts, just don't believe that um, members of Congress are going to not pay the military. And, um, you know, that November 17th date falls between the two pay periods, the 15th, right. 30th. So shut down, big deal. But, you know, the bigger question again is the continued resolution. You know, if we somehow got something to March or April, I also would look at that as bad for potentially bad for defense. I mean, it, it just might increase the probability that um, you do see the Fiscal Responsibility Act cuts kick in. And, um, you know, at the very least, I think January 1st, 2024, when, when we do start going to these, even though they're not, you know, locked down solid until the end of April, acquisition officials are going to behave as if they have that lower resource available. So, right. Um, so I'm, I'm, I, it's a segue to earnings calls, Fago, but I, I really <laughs> found it fascinating that so little was really not just said about this, but asked about it. Um, it's just curious, um, because the, the, you know, I get it. It's an unknowable, but at least you kind of, you know, there should have been more questions and comments about right. how's this affecting your planning? You know, what do you, what do you think? What are the outcomes that you're, preparing for has it affected your hiring you know what are you thinking about cash flow in the fourth quarter and um so it's it's a it's been a weird time because i see this kind of looming issue and it just doesn't seem to be a uh ha having any any traction or concern about an overhang on the sector uh right i mean i find this fascinating how the street 
has a tendency of uh, ignoring these sorts of questions. And sometimes, you know, you can understand for political reasons, management doesn't necessarily want to address them either. Um, give us your sense on earnings. We only have a couple of minutes left. Uh, a lot of companies uh, reported you held up uh, Raytheon that uh, decided to borrow to raise uh, $10 billion uh, to buy back shares, which Wall Street loved, although some would ask at these interest rates, why are you borrowing money and indeed selling a cyber business to help underwrite this? What were your broader takeaways from these uh, earnings? Um, Generally, they were fine. I mean, organic sales growth for most of the defense companies and defense segments was up. Uh, You know, no surprise there, I think, given where investment outlays are. And operating margins that have reported have really been pretty respectable. Um, Yeah, you know, you have instances where fixed price contracts are, are weighing on expectations and you know as much as supply network issues i think have i won't say been completely eliminated you know it's not as if they're they're a major drag on expectations here i the buybacks were kind of intriguing because um you know particularly the rtx announcement um you know it was a signaling mechanism but it does kind of raise a question you know that i'm still curious because that there wasn't a press release. It was just kind of mentioned during the earnings call that, oh, by the way, we're selling this business. We're not, you know, we, we're not disclosing who the buyer is, but it's 1.3 billion in cash. And so, you know, but historically that had been a pretty important and, and kind of, if if it is what I think it is, it's a pretty important business um, in, in Heritage Raytheon. So <clears throat> why that is being sold, you know, is it a lower margin business? You know, are you seeing more competition from defense startups? You know, what what what's what caused the company to make that decision? And I'll just say this: uh, I get it. I get the signaling mechanism. You're buying back stock, but you're not doing anything that's enhancing your out your cash flow. Um, and I I just wonder um, again and again and again. You know, I was at an event last week that Kinetic held, and that was a question that some of the people in the audience asked, like, why aren't you buying more stock? Um, why aren't you buying stock to signal that your stock is undervalued? And, you know, the answer basically was, well, we think we've got a lot of room to invest in this business. And <clears throat> taking cash away that can be used to invest in the business for, you know, a, a, a signal that we think the stock is undervalued, you know, my own view, you can prove that over time. Uh, you don't need to announce a big share buyback, uh, right? Just just to do it, and and you know you're you're up, you know you're taking out on the debt, you know. Well, how what's that going to be refinanced on? You know what happens if something else happens? If we do get into all the bad things that could happen that affect uh, out your expectations, so it's it's a risky move to me. Uh, it is. Uh, it's. It's interesting when companies pull that lever, right? If you have a geared turbofan overhang or something else, hey, let's mollify the street by doing a buyback. They'll. They'll like that, and you know, won't won't look past some of these things. And unfortunately, it it tends to be, uh, you know, even even the best companies, um, you know, succumb. I think to that. Uh, logic. Uh, we've uh, got a little bit of time uh, left. Walk us through what the audience ought to be paying attention to this week, because uh, House is out of session, even if Senate. Uh, is uh, around, or Senate appropriators at least are yeah, around. The, the big, the big issue is going to be the October thirty first Senate appropriations hearing with Secretary Austin and Secretary Blinken to talk about the Ukraine security supplemental. And I think, 
you know, it's probably not so much what they're going to say. It's really the positioning and posturing of the different senators on that community. You know, what are the arguments they're going to they're going to offer to break it up? You know, are they going to make different arguments for why we don't need Ukraine funding? Uh, so that's one thing I'll watch. You know, to your point, even though the House is on recess, there's going to continue to be discussion about what the new speaker will do with these supplemental requests or requests. Um, there are a couple of think tank events. Um, uh, General Smith, the Commandant of the Marine Corps, is going to be speaking at Center for New American Security on Wednesday, um, uh, November 1st. Um, I'm sure, Vago, they're going to continue to be these pop-up events on, on the war in Israel and uh, Gaza. And, um, you know, so so just keep an eye out for some of those because they've been pretty informative in my view. Byron, an absolute pleasure uh, having you on. Thanks so very much. Have a great week. I hope you feel better and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. I will try, Vago. Thank you.